These are the chronicles of the journey we take together. The journey of Steamheart, and one we invite you to take with us through Through the the wind wind door. So now we arrive at chapter 25, and it's only in revisiting the text that I realize I made a mistake long ago, back when you and I were still just putting this together, and I was thinking big thoughts about all of the ephemera of New Century and the ten worlds of the multiverse that Alex would always talk about. Mm -hmm. I remember how you and I made reference to that first experience when the wind door opens up inside for Stecht and we see the red forest beyond. I had had myself, not quite a spreadsheet, but I'd had myself a little list. It's someday it may happen that a victim must be found. I've got a little list. I've got a little list. I'm sorry. I have no idea what's going on. <laughs> you don't know Gilbert and Sullivan? I, I feel like this is an abrogation of your identity as a British man. I know some Gilbert and Sullivan, but not this an extensive... This is the Mikado! The Mikado is one of the most famous Gilbert and Sullivan plays. How do, you, know, you know what? I'm, it's fine. It's fine. I'm just going to move on from here. How is it Are we, are we really going to do Gilbert this, Greg? Are you going to like sit here, put me on full blast for not knowing this? You insult me. <laughs> <laughs> okay, okay. Now, I was like, what are the Ten Worlds? And I, I, I made a list, and I was trying to figure out, okay... So we've got the ones that are named. Mm-hmm. Maybe the Red Forest is another one of them. And I suddenly realized we were missing one, potentially. And I brought this up to Alex, and he pointed out, well, you have to include the world that all of this is being watched from, yes. And I was like, oh my god, the Tenth World is our world, of course not! My oh my god, the call's... Oh my god, the call's coming from inside the house. <laughs> like, at some point, we sh- I feel like maybe we should actually talk about reimagine what the ten worlds are but i had always assumed that the the red forest world was a world that we were eventually going to discover as a part of phase two that was coming out Mm. but now that we're revisiting steamheart finally and i'm actually going through it page by page again my tendency to miss details when reading has sort of cropped up again abigail specifically mentions The room groaned as our weight shifted the structure, and more boards were snatched through. I craned up and caught a glimpse of a red jungle off in the distance where strange animals called and chirped. I recognized the sights, sounds, and smells of that place. It was back at Briar Hill, when Krieger and Greta had walked through their own door. Somehow this was the same world, and we were so close. And if I had just been paying attention in Tiger's Eye, I would have seen that when Miguel was looking through the wind door himself, he described what he saw beyond as a red forest. That is literally Mm. a part of the text. It's just that when one says forest, my immediate assumption is 
temperate forest with like, you know, deciduous leaves right. and all that sort of thing. Forgetting mm. that another name for a jungle is a rainforest. And just because sure. the two of them look very different from each other and you wouldn't mistake one from another, it's still dense foliage. The only thing that is significantly different from the climate of Rama and our own climate is that apparently there's a greater degree of specifically non-green colors that make up that particular flora out there. Mm. Obviously, I'm being reductive. But a comprehensive discussion involves details that aren't revealed until later books, particularly once Alex starts revealing the space-time idiosyncrasies of his multiverse. I'm not even sure when a good time is to discuss it. Maybe in a later Century Tales episode, since it wouldn't fit in well with the retrospective. On some level, that feels like it should just be a minor detail. It's like, oh, okay, that's cleared up now. But, and here's the kicker, this is what made me ponder how it is that Krieger and Greta knew of Rama, and if it's somehow... Well, they read weirdly... Tiger's Eye, clearly. <laughs> uh, no, yeah. Those of you that have already finished Steamheart know why I trailed off there and immediately shut up. It made me wonder if it was connected somehow to the Rama artwork that suggests that humans once visited Rama. But that's one of the things that sort of been, had been nagging in the back of my head that I wanted to finally bring to the fore now that Team Steam is experiencing Rama for the first time. Like you, I suppose I associated that red forest that uh, Greta and Krieger went to with somewhere else because we know Rama for its jungles. But I suppose that might just mean, like you observed that another word for a jungle is a rainforest. So mm -hmm. it could have been that James and Abigail did actually see that very same sort of jungle or a jungle like it. Yeah, and thinking about it, They've probably never seen a rainforest before. Yeah, why would like what that's a very good point. They couldn't really just like say, "Oh, that's a jungle." It's like that's a very good point. But like we've got the, smart people here, but th that doesn't mean that they would necessarily You're still going to classify things within the terms and definitions that you are working with. So, let's be clear here. If they're seeing a portal to another world and they describe what they're looking through it with a little bit of an inaccuracy, I think we can give them like a bit of leeway there. It's also possible that what we're seeing, looking at here, is another part of Rama where the climate is conducive to a, like a European forest rather than a jungle. After all, thanks to the developments we've seen in Tiger's Eye, we know that there are parallels to our own world's history and the sinister shadow of the British Empire. So mm. perhaps Greta and Krieger traveled somewhere else on Rama with mm. similar types of botany, but like, mm. you know, just a different climate. Yeah, I suppose that the reason that they knew about Rama is, you know, that bit that we've seen and something else. And oh, Okay, I'm sorry. The men in black have made off with Toby. We're not allowed to... After consulting with some experts in the field, I've deduced that the best thing is to delay the release of that information at this particular time. There is no reason to speculate on this any further. 
let us carry on our conversation about literally anything else. I actually took a moment to find out what the etymology of jungle comes from, and it's apparently based on an old Sanskrit word, jangala, referencing rough and arid terrain. So I can only think that, like, maybe that's a word that the English came up with after, you Mm. know, having a bit of a chat with um, those wonderful uh, brown-skinned folks that they uh, sailed the ship over to and planted a flag in and said, we Mm. own you now. And I'm sure that the relationship was absolutely just mutually respectful. No hate or resentment building up one way or the other. Definitely not. Mm-hmm. Um, when we were talking about notes for these chapters originally, mm-hmm. you focused on this part first, but you didn't necessarily have a huge amount of uh, like extra details to mm. sort of expand on with chapter 25. So I came yeah. in and kind of supplied we, we a basically... few more talking points so if anyone objects to the direction we take with chapter 25 for the rest of the episode direct all your comments this way <laughs> yeah it was a very action focused chapter and mm. i also feel like i brought up a lot of the specific points in previous conversations with discussing jeremy and also discussing annie so this was like the the, the major th- thematic stuff and plot mm. opening up stuff but mm. go go on and uh yep. share with me some of your thoughts about sure and the spirit of Steamheart being a crossover of many things greg and i are now going to cross over and i will initiate a talking point and he shall relay his response to it mm. so here we go breaking new ground mm. we get to see from abigail's perspective again for the first time in what has been a hot minute and it's not a million miles off or some revelation that strikes us as different to what we were able to infer from her outward actions these last few chapters but it at least re-establishes her own active voice and less of a reactive presence less of an obstacle that other people have to respond against which mm. what her role was in the story with what Annie had to what she had to respond to when they went to the Diamond Bell and more besides. Abigail is hardly exuberant about James and Rebecca. In point of fact, she speaks minimally of them and acknowledges it briefly when she must in a very cold fashion. But she's also not being shitty about it either. It is what it is, but she's not going to fixate on it or insult either of them excessively as a result of any hurt feelings that she might have from their coupling. Something I've been watching slash rewatching a lot of recently is... The West Wing? No, actually. I, I know, right, I I'll put that penny down. I understand how you might think about that. But no, in this particular case... I was looking for something with like a comforting aspect to it. And against all odds, the thing that I settled down with, which feels unusual given everything that's happened in the last eight years, Mm -hmm. is Castle. Oh, yeah. Because obviously this is a police procedural. But I mean, I enjoyed Elementary for what it was, even though... That had, you know, a heavy cop element, a heavy copaganda element, one might say. Sure. But I remembered from the f- the little bit that I'd seen of the show that I really enjoyed the dynamic between the uh, the trickster character of 
Rick Castle, played by Nathan mm. Fillion, and mm. the stern but friendly detective Kate Beckett. Mm. And because it's one of those shows wherein there's a heavy aspect of a will they, won't they between our protagonists. There are oh, many shows one. like that. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. Uh, David Boreans and I forget what the character's name is in Bones. It, you, know, you know, that sort of thing is everywhere where it's like, because it's a major, not plot element, well, I mean, it's a personal arc element, they mm-hmm. always tend to stretch it out as long as they can because unfortunately in a lot of cases... Writers love writing about unresolved sexual tension. They don't really know what to do with happy, stable couples and everything like that. But I really like some of the middle game when Castle and Beckett are really getting used to each other and Mm. enjoying each other's company, but worried about taking the next step. Mm. And one of those things that happens every now and then, which is often a component with unresolved sexual tension in movies and tv shows and a lot of other places as well is that when somebody else enters the picture whether it's a man on beckett's side or a woman on castle's side there's some ruffling of feathers from the other member and they act a little stupidly and immaturely yes it's a little bit tropey but it's tropey for a reason these are the ways that we respond when we Mm. feel like our territory is being encroached on by Mm. an outsider that outsider doesn't have to be a romantic outsider. It's sure. just like when our identity is sensed to be centered around a specific person and we feel like someone else is interfering in a dynamic that like brings us security and comfort, even mm. if it is unresolved. There's a reason why people love writing about that, because it's very true to reality. It's taking a feeling that happens not very frequently. It's very sort of high school sociology kind of adjacent. So it's understandable to find it tedious. Mm-hmm. But I think it takes a feeling that is not unfamiliar to real life and it dramatizes it. Mm-hmm. It says, how can we pull outward tension from something that in real life you might sit on those feelings and kind of be like, just it only goes so far as something that you think about, you maybe talk about with a friend, and then, as life tends to do, it changes. But in a episodic drama, you sit with that with it for a bit, you dramatize it, you have characters acknowledge it and have things happen as a result of it. It may be that people react a bit more dramatically than people do in real life but the clue is in Mm. the word i chose there drama it is there for a reason enhanced reality enhanced reality for sure and i think like any tool that writers have it's about a deft touch in the way that you apply slash engage with tropes and things like this toby makes an excellent point here tropes are not inherently bad in and of themselves they are tools shorthand. They are common patterns in writing that dramatize common patterns in human behavior. Like everything, what matters is how these patterns get explored, and if you can use the tools of the medium in ways that are compelling. In a primarily visual medium, you either have to demonstrate how someone is feeling through performance and actions, or alternatively, you need to give your characters someone to externalize with. A good piece of work uses all the tools in the toolbox 
so that exploration doesn't get repetitive or one-dimensional. In New Century, Alex uses the strengths of the written medium to allow us to see the characters' internal lives, either allowing us direct access to their thoughts, or a one-step-removed access because our heroes are narrating their lives through journal entries. The more nuance and context you provide, the better we can engage and empathize with the characters. I could go on from here to gripe about the recent Warner Brothers Discovery debacle, and how a company that has its money devoted to unscripted dramatic content has no idea what to do with scripted content, well-made or not. I could talk about how, in my opinion, the media they invest in uses an enhanced reality that tends to appeal to base emotions rather than considered empathy or thoughtful nuance. The kind of media that brought us Jerry Springer, Big Brother, The Bachelor, Survivor, Britain's Got Talent, and fucking cops. Bad boys, bad boys, what you gonna do? What you gonna do? But as I write this editorial insert, I find that trying to explain all of that with the kind of nuance I prefer would take far too much time. So, back to our original conversation. The last thing I will say is I'm very glad that you brought up Castle and the interaction between two people within that show, because that's kind of what is going on in the subject area here, but also in what you and I are doing here. Not the romantic will-they-won't-they they tension, that's something else. Toby's really becoming an incorrigible flirt, isn't he? But more in the sense of they are castling one another and swapping positions, places, perspectives, all of that. Very clever. I like the wordplay there. I've always been a I've always been a fan of a good, not horrible dad joke pun. Though I do also love horrible dad jokes. But like a subtle shift in the way that the dual meanings of a word can be applied to multiple readings of a situation. For sure. It's it's like, oh, there's that word that means that other word. And it's mm -hmm. like, well, wait a minute. That's not actually a million miles unconnected to what we're talking about here. Let's mm. do something. So when we do come to the wind door, there's a notable pair of moments that happen one after the other. First, Abigail absentmindedly experiments and plays with the wind door while James is attempting to connect with and close it. And the unintended effect of that is that James thinks he's finally succeeding because the wind door is responding as he's making a great effort to do something about it. And then Abby chimes in with like, sorry, sorry, that was me, which is kind of a Pratt move to pull, albeit not a willing one. Abigail even acknowledges this and voices regret over it in her narration. Yeah, that's honestly a kind of an aspect of her own personality in terms of her personal curiosity. James is, is curious as well. It's just that James's response to things is generally more to observe and to think, whereas mm -hmm. Abby's response is more to prod at it. It's just mm -hmm. that in a lot of cases, we expect her to prod verbally at things 
rather than physically at things. For those of you that might interrupt and say, wait, Abigail physically probes at the world all the time as well as verbally. During recording, I was focusing more on letting Toby finish his planned monologue, and you'll hear about how I correct myself, and we get into the various ways Abigail expresses her proactive personality. They are both prodding at it at a moment where, for him, it's to see what his abilities are, mm. whereas Abigail is just kind of trying to interact with the thing itself. She just doesn't quite think ahead to the moment, to the effect of, oh, mm. shit, he's trying to do something here, and me doing that is kind of a dick move. However... Her awareness of her hurting his feelings in this moment does not hold her back from taking action and taking control of the situation when it becomes necessary. Her pushing aside of James could be read as a little heartless after she is shown to be conscious of what he is trying to do here and, and what her interjection does for that. But I don't think it's born out of anything other than her reaching the conclusion that they're out of time and they need to get a handle on the situation fast. If she can do something to help resolve the situation, Abigail acts. And as she is kind of becoming more of a leader and is actually trying to do stuff, she has to make a informed decision and say, okay, I know that what this might do if I do this, but I've got to do it anyway because like the consequence of inaction isn't something I can sit on. On top of that, in this moment, Annie says, you can do this from the shore. Mm. And it makes me think of that moment in chapter 20, where Abigail is not able to stay safe inside Steamheart and has to get out and actually physically contribute to what is going on. Just as we were talking about how Actions are reflective of people's personalities. Just because this isn't a fight scene, it's still an action scene. And uh-huh. the idea of the fact that she feels she needs to be right up close and personal in order to do it, rather than acting from a place of safety. Like, we don't know for certain if she would have a harder time interacting with it from the shore. We just know that she's had enough success with it by now that she could have done it from the Mm. show. But that's not how Abigail thinks. Mm. She sort of feels like she needs to get up right in the face of a problem, whether Mm. it's a person or a fight or whatever it is. Think of all those past confrontations. Answering Tommy Sweeney's rudeness with a blow. Answering Dr. Potts's challenge by drinking the Smilax Ornata. Chasing and tackling Doris, directly making an appeal to Mary Sampson, considering scaling the wall at Verstecht or breaking down the hidden door. Abigail has been telling us, with every action, who she is. So it's hard for her to break out of that mindset and do what Annie suggests, even if her advice is more cogent on the situation, that she's unnecessarily putting both of them in danger. But she doesn't necessarily look at it that way because it's more about, as you were saying a moment ago, her being willing to risk herself in order to get something done, which she doesn't have a problem with. 
she throws herself into danger because that's what she knows how to do. She doesn't know how to lead from behind the way mm. Annie sometimes can. Abigail is a person who punches problems in the face. <laughs> Annie is a sharpshooter who takes care of things from a distance. Oh, well done. Yes, yes. Excellent point. Mm. Not to mention that Abigail probably feels less confident trying to resolve issues from a distance, considering literally her eye makes yeah. it more difficult for her to shoot. Yes, she has to be up close because like, that's where she is the most confident in her success. Mm, mm. Mm. The, yeah, yeah, all I, of a sudden this literally ties back to in moments of great stress, you go to where you feel strongest. Yes. Oh, that makes so much sense. I love th what we've hit on here, mm -hmm. just through the process of the conversation, that that is a another core difference between Annie and Abigail, is that mm -hmm. Abigail, in a lot of situations, pushes herself right up against the thing that she wants to take care of. Abigail isn't just reaching out with her hand for dramatic purposes, although it feels that way. It's like she feels she has to close the window with her own hand, as if she could reach out and touch it, like an actual door. And that means that she puts herself in danger, and for Annie, she is about like being a sharpshooter who takes care of this from a distance, and the thing that she needs to take care of and protect is going right up against the source of danger, which not only puts Abigail in danger, but it messes up Annie's shot, and therefore her ability mm. to help resolve it. And that's the literal embodiment of all these sort of subtextual and thematic analogies that come out of that scenario, directly displayed in the encounter with the Southern Cross, that Abigail confronts one of them jumps out of the safety of Steamheart and into the fray onto another vehicle and Annie wants to do something but Abigail is making it actively difficult for her to do the thing she's best at. It's just another ingredient to the fascinating dramatic stew that part three is brewing for everybody mm. here. Yeah, it is taking the characters, saying what they're best at and asking how can we complicate that? How can we compromise that in mm -hmm. some way? Just as James is working at a disadvantage in that his abilities are severely handicapped by his lack of a second eye, Annie is handicapped in the sense that her shot is often complicated by Abigail. A quick final note about this chapter I love that the exit of Rebecca in the audio version of this book features another reprise of music from Let Them Go's audiobook. It points to this bittersweet departure slash severing of a meaningful romantic connection just as it was solidifying being in an element of her particular genre of story that she has brought with her to this genre stew that Steamheart features across its many chapters through its celebration and unification of past new century stories. It's been a while since I've re-listened to the audio drama of Let Them Go, and to be perfectly honest, the fact that you kind of clued into this, it's a little bit difficult for me to 
assert one way or another that individual characters in New Century have a leitmotif. Because in a lot of cases, Alex is reusing the same Kevin MacLeod music over Mm. and over again for individual chapters and tends to save major themes whether he's gotten permission to use them or paid outright for an existing track from somebody or mm. had it specifically composed by somebody else, I would probably have to actually go back and re-listen to that one part of chapter 25 and see if I can pick out if there's a piece of music that specifically seems mm. to be indicative of Rebecca herself, or at the very least out of a feeling that let them go encourages overall. It may not be Rebecca's theme in mm. the same way that we could ascribe the tiger's eye that like, I forget what it's called, but it has that sort of Legend of Korra flavor to it. Oh, yes. The... Um, Agent in Shanghai. Yes. That's it. Or when we hear from Annie in Arlington and it brings in that theme we heard from Secret Rooms, uh, like, down like, and it's like suddenly we're in a Western. As it turns out, the music Toby heard was, in fact, a piece composed for Let Them Go called Meltdown. It was one of two pieces by Gilhaim Steinberg, and we hear it in Chapter 3, Back to Ravenwood. The music occurs when Rebecca is remembering the second trip they made to Ravenwood after the death of Timothy, thinking about the conflict that arose and how their father promptly departed from their lives in the weeks thereafter. One could say that it is a song less representative of Rebecca herself and more of a feeling a feeling that is associated with this part of her life, and a feeling that could be considered representative of what is happening now. Honestly, it's impressive to me that Toby picked it out, because as near as I can tell based on the credits notes for each chapter of the audio drama, this is the only time that piece plays, except, I believe, during a brief portion of the final chapter. That's only what I discovered through a thorough investigation after the fact, however. At the time, we came to the only conclusion that made sense, given the evidence. The overall aesthetic sense of Let Them Go is one of sadness and despair and loss. This is therefore a theme that we are returning to because once again, Rebecca has to walk away from something. That's precisely it. Even if this is not Rebecca's theme, because like, as we have talked about for many chapters, Rebecca has been able to and should be able to have a life that extends beyond her moments of defining sadness. It is taking us back to, or it is giving us a bit of the flavor of her world, the world of Let Them Go, Mm -hmm. that even if it's just for this bit before she has to exit the book, we are returning to the same pool that we drunk from in Let Them Go. And something that the text of the book literally alludes to, for the greater good, she has to be willing to let James go. That's just the title that keeps on giving, isn't it? (laughs) Yes, but on top of that, you know, we've already established at this point that 
there is already a running theme throughout a good portion of mm. these phase one stories yeah. where you have to mm. find a way to be okay with loss and yet mm. continue on. These characters have had to get good at that, or even if they're not good at it, because how is anyone really good at it? They've had to learn mm. one way or the other. A thing that was causing me to smile was I was thinking like, man, we really need a follow-up to let them go that kind of is a refutation of that in some way that allows mm. Rebecca to grab onto some happiness. And I was trying to think like what a good title was. And the only one I could think of was Take On Me. I mean, I'm not entirely sure that I can theoretically imagine that. (laughs) Sort of. But it's just like, you remember how that music video ends. I'm suddenly imagining Rebecca in her coat and the idea of her slamming herself up against the walls slash the panels of the comic in order to try and get back through. Absolutely. Absolutely. (laughs) If I could draw it, you know I would. Mm Mm-hmm. Before moving on to the next point, I wanted to add one more thought that I had during my editorial research. If I choose to consider the use of Meltdown thematically, there may be more to be mudded. Even though the reasons why are completely different, there is a synchronicity in how familial turmoil made Charles Wolverton choose to leave, and the team steam conflict encouraged Rebecca to leave. They even both go to another continent, adding a further gulf to their absence. At first, I considered if this was a pattern only in my own mind, one not intended by the text. But Rebecca has already thought in the previous chapter about repeated patterns in her own life. Therefore, I leave the final interpretation of why this piece of music as an exercise for other readers. It's strange that we can call the closing of a window a sort of gelling moment because the ramifications of it closing is kind of for the greater picture of what Steamheart is, i.e. a meeting point between many characters. It's the ramifications of it being closed, which is more important, really, than the actual action of closing it. So it's strange to think of this chapter as being kind of like the stepping stones to get to, like, the real juicy bits. Well, you might remember from an episode that I have since released, I sort of took a moment to think about the metaphorical implications of calling part three doorways. And it's easy to look at it as being a representation of the fact that Team Steam is confronting and dealing with a whole bunch of wind doors 
mm. in this part of the story. But I wanted to expand on that idea a little bit and think of if there were other doorways that might come into play here, either literal doorways or metaphysical doorways. Mm. And one of the things that comes to mind is the experience that Abigail had when she was coming home from the Diamond Bell drunk and wanting to know where James was. And he opens the door just enough to like reveal himself in his underwear to tell her to go to bed before closing the door behind him again. And the fact that that's literally sort of subtext made physical in this moment, that he is putting up the wall back between them. That is quite literally one door closing while another one opens. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. Because it, it is what makes the situation between her and Harry possible, even though, as we have established at this point, Harry is the instigator in this. She sees what happens with that whole doorway and thinking, this is my chance. I mean, not not quite in that excited mindset, but, you know, clearly we already know how emotionally vibrant that one particular moment was with Harry. Yes. Wanting to pursue something, unsure that she should pursue something, but like Mm. thinking in her head, he's no longer an obstacle. Maybe this leaves some room for me. Literally the door of possibility opening. She saw the telltale prompt. She went for it. Uh, <laughs> door closes and suddenly Harry will remember that. Um, <laughs> no, you just have like the many things of like the dot, the dot. And it, one of them is just these sort of caption brackets. So it just says, kiss her. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. When I originally brought up metaphorical doors opening and closing in this part of the story, my intent was to relate that metaphor to what we had been discussing earlier. A door of possibility had opened up between James and Rebecca, but in chapter 25, she makes the decision to close that door. For now. I was clearly distracted from this topic as the image of James and Abigail back in chapter 23 loomed larger in my mind, and then afterwards, my brain chased a different white rabbit, seeing how this metaphor led me to the next part of our planned outline. But specifically in terms of the wind doors themselves, Mm. there's a certain poetic irony in the fact that Abigail closing this door and therefore being unable to open it again is what allows for a different kind of storytelling to be made possible. Because Mm. as we're about to get into, Miguel and Frau are in their minds to return to Rama and now can't. Which Mm. means that in order to have a hope of returning to that world, they have to link up with Team Steam there, and that brings the opportunity for some of these new group dynamics that we've been alluding to. Now, I know that this will drive Alex crazy, (laughs) because I am deliberately going to use the word interesting Mm -hmm. and not expand on it, because I am going to say it is interesting that we have here the implication that the counterpoint to a door closing is a door opening. Toby is trying to be coyly vague here in order to avoid spoiling. 
but this is definitely a subject we will return to after the secret to how the starlight eyes function is revealed. As chapter 26 opens, this is where the aftermath of the previous chapter starts coming into focus because they make the decision, they being Miguel and Hrau here, that since they potentially cannot exist in this world without conflict with the locals, maybe it would be just better to return to Hrau's home, which Miguel is more than happy at this point to accept as his own. Once more, the hero's journey comes to mind in regards to the story of Frau and Miguel. But it's difficult to apply, because we have two protagonists, and therefore two different journeys. Sure, they overlap, but from a certain point of view, Frau's choice to follow Miguel home feels like a refusal of the return, while Miguel has made it all the way past crossing his return threshold, and into the territory of Campbell's Master of Two Worlds and Freedom to Live stages. As we've said before, the Hero's Journey framework is only useful in how it allows people to deconstruct a story. It's a tool, just like tropes, and can be used well or badly. Sometimes it's not helpful at all if the framework doesn't fit the story. It's here that I have to acknowledge that I'm just not that good at using a toolbox I was never trained on. In attempting to explain this moment using the monomyth, I kept writing and then erasing my thoughts as I talked myself in circles, trying to explain it. Maybe Alex and Sharon could do it, but I explained it poorly during my original conversation with Toby, and can't do any better now. But then, this also isn't a hero's journey. Singular. We've already said all of our protagonists are on their own journeys. Some of them will stop by the end of the story, and some will continue on. Some patterns fit, and others do not. The importance here is that Hrau and Miguel have found the group that they needed in order to figure out what is next for them. It's just that the meeting entails them trying to return to Rama, being stymied, and then all of a sudden a motley crew turns up in a mysterious metal craft and goes, You look like fascinating outsiders. Come, join the rest of us outsiders to our own society as well. Mm-hmm. It's the equivalent of like someone in an open-topped car just driving up. It's like, sup, nerds? Ditch your dad. He sucks. Come drive with us. <laughs> Get in, loser. We're going shopping. So... Yes, we'll get to the meeting itself between both groups imminently, and you know I can barely contain myself with that. But first, we've got to talk about how impressively far Miguel has come, as demonstrated by the opening hunt that he essentially partners up with Hrau during. He is of Rama now. He isn't clumsy as we saw him to be in the earlier chapters of Tiger's Eye, but instead possesses a targeted decisiveness with his strike. It's almost elegant. He also exhibits an awareness of the consequences of the action and a respect of the creature that he has just taken the life of or contributed to its death, just as we saw with Frau doing during her introduction back in the very first scene in Tiger's Eye. Plus, 
he pairs it with words of his own language, speaking spiritual words in Spanish, which calls to mind his grandmother that we learned of during his segment in Tiger's Eye. The whole sequence serves to cram in a little more encapsulation of these two characters that speaks to their characterization in their previous book for those who had not read it before coming to Steamheart, while also showcasing to those who did read it just how much they've progressed since then. There's also a moment, and I don't remember if I touched on this back during our initial conversation, Remember how I talk about Miguel sort of being the Rosetta Stone, being the focal point of communication Mm. in general, just as he is going to be the basis for communication between Prow and Team Steam. This early scene where he uses the metaphor of an animal specific to Prow's world Mm. in order to express a concept shows Mm. an advanced understanding of her world and her language, even if he's not all that good at speaking it. The important thing is the understanding, not the dexterous puissance that Mm. he lacks in terms of being able to form Rama words. Yeah, because the development of skills and the arc of Tiger's Eye was not just Miguel is good at hunting and stabbing now. Mm -hmm. We saw what the result of that is. It is not something that Miguel wants to be the thing that defines him. He does not want to be defined by his ability to take life. What he and Crowshare is defined by their ability to communicate. That was what the arc of Tiger's Eye is. And this advanced sort of specific cultural reference point is absolutely a display of very informed internal knowledge of Hrao, Rama, and the zoology of this other world. The fact that he even makes a sort of animal noise to imitate it is also just a sign of like, that's not lost on Hrao. She's needled by it, but like not so much that it's like actually hurtful to her pride. She's needled by it but just kind of amused by Miguel and also just, I think, a little bit proud of him being able to kind of make that reference. This use of native idiom and multicultural reference makes me think of more than a couple of scenes in the Mass Effect trilogy, where all the various world-building is used more than once as a part of conversation to make use of an idea that could only exist in that world and not our own. When Miguel mentions the Snaffle Pig, it reminds me of a moment in Mass Effect 2. Shepard is trying to goad a Krogan scout into escaping from a research facility instead of staying there to be experimented on. If you have Tally Zora with you, your quarry and crewmate, you get an amusingly affronted response from her. If you want to help Erdnot, you need to get back there. But it would take a real badass to make it back to camp while injured. I can do it. You? I said a badass, not some scout whining like a quarian with a tummy ache. I'm standing right here. Another thing that this hunting scene brings to mind is the juxtaposition of how different audiences might perceive Miguel. Mm. I made a joke when we were discussing some future humorous stuff for our final chapters on Steamheart, 
that the overall arc of Tiger's Eye is the Jungle Book plus slavery. <laughs> but in the Jungle Book, Mowgli returns to his own people after the jungle takes care of him. To the human world, especially with his mask and his claws, if other humans saw him like this, I almost imagine that their point of reference would be more like he is the Tarzan to them. Someone who is mm. more at home in the world that adopted him than he is in his own world. They would be wrong, of course, because we see how Miguel re-entered his past and faced down his father with far more confidence than he ever had prior to the events of Tiger's Eye. But it also kind of means that all this discussion that we've had of him being of Rama, he's the man that walks between worlds. Okay, so I did successfully use Campbell after all. Well, I was going to say, if we're bringing in Tarzan, it's shocking how applicable this is, but it really is a case of, put your faith in what you most believe in. <laughs> Two worlds, one family. Trust your heart. Let fate decide to guide these lives, to guide these lives we see. I'm sorry, we're we just going to trade off whose duty it is to sing for any given Skype session. I, I think we're doing a pretty even distribution of responsibility on that. Okay, I appreciate yeah. that. Yeah, yeah. Also, like, the responsibility of the entire School of Movies Discord community that at any one time one of us has to be jabbing at uh, Alex with his dissing of Phil Collins with the Tarzan <laughs> show. Okay, yeah, okay, fair enough. <laughs> I tend to think of it as my responsibility, given how important Phil Collins <laughs> was to my personal appreciation of music growing mm. up. Like, mm. I haven't necessarily alluded to this before, because, shockingly, Phil Collins has not come up as part of our discussion with New Century. But... Don't worry, man, I've got your back. The floor is yours. Well, no, no I'm not going to digress <laughs> too far on this subject, but... When I was young and still trying to figure out what I liked, what mattered to me, mm -hmm. I sort of had one foot in my father's world where I was listening to the music of his past, which involved a lot of folk rock 70s stuff or even like, you know, a little bit harder stuff. You got your Fleetwood Mac, you got your Joan Baez, you got your Joni Mitchell, Peter, Paul and Mary, a whole bunch of stuff in there. But Phil Collins was the artist that I sort of chose. This was the thing that I really liked and wanted to listen more of. His albums are like some of the first that I actually bought for myself. And there is a certain poetic irony in the fact that my embracing of him as a musical artist was one of the things that made me weird to my peer group. Because they were into New Kids on the Block and the growing R&B movement and just a bunch of stuff that was a lot hipper. Whereas Phil Collins, at least here in the States, was considered pretty lightweight overall, like soft rock and stuff like that. So it was just one more thing that made me feel like Miguel in comparison to the rest of my world. And you shunned his work, Alex. You <laughs> bastard. 
All right, all right, all right. We've raked him over the coals enough yep. here. Let's yep. let's proceed back to mm. New Century. So, so the big moment. <sighs> and then, after all of that, we see Steamheart introduced from the perspective of someone on the other side of it. It is a great, imposing, nonsensical beast that defies what Crow knows of her world, and this one. Heck, even to Miguel, this is an unknown structure, an unknown mm. thing. Likewise, we get to see how unknowable and truly terrific Crowl looks like to Team Steam coming across her for the first time. Two groups unknown to one another in the truest sense of the word, that they are not just strangers coming across one another they are what the fuck is that while the other side is going what the fuck is that both out of this world out of many worlds in fact coming to this junction in the world at last fuck yes this was in some ways the moment that i was waiting for all the way back when i was listening to this in 2019 going like Yes, my two favorite characters finally get to meet the rest of my favorite characters. Now, if only we can find a way to make sure that something bad doesn't happen here. But fortunately, mm -hmm. as we've been hinting at for a while now, Miguel is the keystone to this. The mm -hmm. term I once more referred to is Rosetta Stone. I recently had time and impetus to try out Lindsay Ellis's first book, Axiom's End. For the record, Highly recommended. Being able to communicate with an alien species is important there as well. The protagonist of that story being a translator between humanity's government and an advanced alien race that can understand English but not speak it. In this way, there is strong crossover appeal between that story and New Century. The alien representative may be able to make themselves understood, but only through technology that allows them to send English words to the one translating human. And even then, the protagonist still needs a lot of extra information from the alien, asking questions about culture and point of view, so she can reframe what the alien is saying in a context that the other humans will be able to accept more easily. However, in that book, other humans cannot see them communicating, so it takes them a while before they accept that a college girl with blue hair can understand an alien that isn't vocalizing. At one point, she even has to defend the alien with her own life before they will listen, much like Miguel does with Hral. It does help, of course, that Team Steam isn't the sort to shoot first and ask questions later. But as Toby and I got into, it helps even more that our other human protagonists could see that actual communication was taking place through sign. To be honest, even if he had a complete vocal mastery over her language i think that it's better for the other side to see him signing to mm. her because that really conveys there is some sort of communication going on whereas That's a if good he point. starts other... to make a bunch of <laughs> like that sort of thing that could be misconstrued as what is he doing is he being aggressive or something like mm. that mm. That's actually so, an excellent point. I hadn't thought of that. It's yeah. not just for her. It's for them, too. You were mentioning a moment ago about not just how Steamheart appears to Hrau and Miguel, 
but how Frau appears to our erstwhile adventurers here. And honestly, nothing puts it better than the way Abigail frames it to the rest of the team. Look at the size of her. Gray whispered to us all. She's bigger than a grizzly bear. And at this range, your best bet with a grizzly would be to file down the foresight on whatever gun you're holding. That way, when the bear takes it off you and shoves it up your ass, it won't hurt as much. The only thing that we can hope to do is to approach her with open hands and have a dialogue with her. But Mm. it's understandable how this is completely pushing Annie the wrong way. Because, again, just like we were talking about a moment ago, if she's going to face this unknown potential threat, she would do it at range in safety. And here Abby is insisting on meeting the problem head on, even if she's not like proposing to fight Frau. Mm. Not yet, anyway. Yeah. And while Annie is able to actually employ something that she's very good at, mm-hmm. or like second best at, as she says to Butler in an earlier chapter, mm-hmm. where Miguel initiates conversation and communication. She latches on to that, so she has enough to be able to say, okay, half the time it can't work, let's see if it's one of those half times. But she's also, you have to imagine, a little on edge, because the last time she was... Extremely stressed out. Yeah, the last time that she engaged with a giant thing that looked like a big great cat Mm. from another world... It didn't go so hot for her. Yeah. Because we forget the manticore also looked like a giant lion in mm. addition to all the other like hodgepodge of creatures that it had going for it. And this is a giant tiger, so it's mm. sort of like, okay, don't know if this is the cousin of Seth's ride or something. I don't know. <laughs> like, yeah, exactly. <laughs> We've seen artistic representations of Seth as well. And mm. even though he may not seem as cat-like as Brayoff. There's okay, still I was a... blanking on Brayoff's name for a second. Yeah. Even though he may not seem as cat-like as Brayoff, he still carries himself. Obviously, the, the first analogy we come to is the beast from Beauty and the Beast. I wouldn't necessarily say that that beast is specifically cat-like, but on the other hand, there was a TV show here in the States. The Ron Linda... Perlman one? Exactly. Ron Mm. Perlman and Linda Hamilton doing a Beauty and the Beast TV show where the makeup that Ron Perlman is wearing is very specifically indicative of a cat because he has that nose, just like Mm. a a lion's nose. And his fur is very golden, like a male lion. So, yeah. I'll throw up a picture into show notes for those who have not seen the Ron Perlman Beast who also has head hair not unlike a lion's mane. Seth's own hair is similarly impressive, further making the two seem similar, although his mane is more wild and tangled, in places more like dreadlocks. But to get back to the communication part for a second, something that this moment may make clear to us is that Miguel may well have been speaking Spanish the entire time he was failing to communicate with Rao in Rama. 
if that's his default that he comes to, because that's what he tries first when trying to address the, the members of Team Steam, when we're in Miguel's point of view, we see him say, stop. But when mm. we see him from Team Steam's point of view, he uses the Spanish word for stop. Mm. And it's one of those weird moments where it's like, technically everything has to be translated into English for us, even if we're in an alien world. So to us, especially during the audio drama, Crow and Miguel were always speaking a translated version of whatever they were saying. But we always assumed that because Miguel was of our world, that he was actually speaking in English. Now we find out just how deep the universal translator goes in this particular case, um, mm. especially since whenever anyone was saying something that the other couldn't understand in Tiger's Eye, Alex was representing that with that like garbled noise effect that he does to jumble everything up to make it sound like nonsense soup from the other person's perspective. Yes, we yeah, exactly. For those that know what comes next, yes. This is only the beginning of a larger conversation in regards to the events of chapters 27 and 28. Maybe I shouldn't have been surprised that Spanish is Miguel's native language, seeing as Tiger's Eye clearly states that he lived in Guanajuato, a city in central Mexico, before the Wendigo outbreak. But I also remember how at one point, the text indicates that he was using the English word for goat, rather than the Spanish word la cabra, to refer to the meat Hrau hunted for them. I should probably ask Dad more about growing up bilingual. Whenever we visited the Mexican side of my family in McAllen, Texas, including my abuelo and abuela, conversations would often drift between Spanish words and English words. Mm. So, it's a good thing that Annie speaks Spanish which allows them to diffuse the initial um, hostile response on Hrau's side, because, again, she can take their guns and shove them up their ass. But it's still a group effort on both sides that negotiations go as well as they do with Hrau's already existing distrust of man, as is kind of established in that opening scene. And even though Annie herself is on edge after, as you say, everything that happened with Seth. This encounter's resolution is satisfying to see, not only because we want to see everyone get along, but as you say, it's indicative of the hard-earned progress and characterization of not only Miguel, but everyone present. From Annie's negotiating being like well-established since the beginning of Secret Rooms, her abilities to be able to diffuse a situation. We've known for a long time that she's been able to do that. To Abigail gradually learning how to do it in her own way herself, to Miguel's confidence and self-assurance after getting out from the stifling presence of his father, to Frau managing to make peace with certain individuals who were once her enemy, namely Harker and some of the lions, these stories have been about people hoping against the cruel realities of this world that outcomes like this are indeed possible. So when they end up meeting, their quick resolution isn't just convenient to our 
crossover demands and impulses. It's the result of a long and hard-fought development on all sides. Mm. And the idea that you quickly get this feeling that, like, Brow and Miguel aren't just sort of coming in and being like, oh, wow, you're able to do all this stuff. It's like, okay, well, like, it seems as if, like, you guys aren't very good at opening and closing portals and stuff like that, even though that's your literally your <laughs> entire mission. is just like, you catch on quick. Yeah, like, we're kind of figuring this out, too. It's a good way of showing that, like, neither are playing with all the cards. They kind of have to trust one another. Well, honestly, the best way to establish trust is to emit vulnerability. Yeah. And, and that's not something that people from a colonial background are always very good at doing. Mm -hmm. The significance of, again, Brow and Miguel meeting exactly the right people is what makes the difference in this matter. It's solidified by, I think, the equivalent of it is a handshake, isn't it? And yeah. It, obviously, it can't be accomplished with the same dexterity as mm. it would be because of Crow's hand slash paw being different from theirs. Also, mm. the size differential. Yeah. That last moment of this chapter is very, like, is that her custom? It's like, no, it, it's yours. Like, yeah. duh. <laughs> <laughs> but of yeah, course, they, like... would they would have no way of knowing that, obviously. Mm. But it, the fact that she is able to reach out or, mm. or, or show a level of understanding at this point. Like, this is something that Miguel has taught her. Therefore, she's going to take what she learned and use it with Team Steam mm. to try and put them at ease. Thinking about it, accepting a handshake from Brow is already a huge sign of trust. While we'll never know for certain... Historians have suggested that the handshake originated as a sign of peaceful intent, since it shows that the hand holds no weapon. That's not the case for an eight-foot tiger, complete with claws. Annie even acknowledges that Hrau could end her with a single blow, and yet shakes her hand anyway. The story obliges this fantastic moment of accomplishment by literally setting off fireworks to facilitate, like, oh my god, we, yes, we finally got here! Like, yes. Right, right. Yeah. Much later in a future book, I had forgotten that this moment had happened on the 4th of July. God, mm -hmm. this is a much better 4th of July than, say, our most recent one was. But yeah, the whole experience of, like, Miguel admitting that he doesn't actually know how old he is, the idea that this meeting of two worlds, as you say, don't sing the song again, is heralded by diegetic fireworks. Very good symbolism there. Brow and Miguel joined the party. Which is important, because you must gather your party before venturing forth. <laughs> <laughs> two geeky references accomplished, and I think that will do it. <laughs> yeah. On top of the fact that this entire conversation is likely going to be its own extended episode at this point i don't want to talk too much more beyond this point because it just feels like my rising excitement about some of the storytelling beats that are going to come from the next three chapters i don't want to spoil any of that um, mm -hmm. i want to be able to talk about it as soon as i have fully relived those moments 
and can get the most out of talking about them. Mm-hmm. Now, more than any other time, this is like the moment we've been waiting for to be able to talk about some of the stuff that we've had to hold back on when going through all of the earlier books and the character moments and development moments that are made possible by the joining of Miguel and Harau to Team Steam. Not just the overall, like, finally we get to the closing big Avengers book that brings everything from phase one together into a nice, big, uh, dramatic, world-changing moment by the joining of representatives from all these different walks of life and Mm -hmm. all of this buildup of mythology and theme. Sorry, I guess I've lost my bit of train of thought here. I just Mm. feel a little bit overcome by the moment. On a very immediate emotional level, it's vindicating to see a story that meant so much to you be recognized and acknowledged by the rest of the fictional world made up of other stories that have meant a lot to you. And suddenly there's just a thread that, like, you've seen and been able to recognize it as this third-person observer, not the narrator, just the observer of all these disparate Mm. stories and worlds. But now the moving pieces within them are starting to recognize their own connecting threads. And that's vindicating because it adds extra weight to everything you've been seeing and like a feeling that what will happen in one part will overlap and connect with and impact other things going on. Yeah. As you and I have been continuing along our literary journey here, I find myself grateful that even though I'm sure that you and I could make a meal out of any topic that we chose to discuss, whether it's everything everywhere all at once or a TV show or a book or some other piece of shared media that we love. But the fact that we get to talk about this every couple of weeks and then share our thoughts with it to the wider world at large, it's almost a relief because there's so much else out there that doesn't always live up to our expectations, that there's moments in it that sort of take us out of what's going on and make it so that we can't enjoy it for whatever reason, whether we're talking about my experience with Multiverse of Madness or more recently, Obi-Wan Kenobi, and the different ways in which I wanted to engage with what was provided, but something about what was laid before me just made it a very mixed experience for me and did not allow me to settle in and just immerse myself in this world. Mm. I have never had that problem with New Century. Even when I may have had issues with it along the way, and we'll get to, you know, more of those eventually as you and I continue doing our retrospective and covering these stories in detail. But it has never taken me out of the experience the way some other bigger name pieces of media do. Mm. I'm Abed. 
Toby. I, I like liking things. I don't want to not like them. But mm. my brain works in a certain way. And when something feels like I'm tripping over a crack and it completely ruins my ability to be immersed in that story, it makes it difficult to be able to not just appreciate it, but to be able to discuss it later on without feeling like, yeah, I really liked it, but there's this thing over here that's like a tack in my foot, and I need to be able to take it out so that I can relieve myself of the frustration that I have for having stepped on it in the first place. Mm. I'm not going to go down the path of like suddenly like getting into a like full conversation of the specifics of Obi-Wan Kenobi because um, you you can like, see that's... what I yeah you can yeah. see what I had to say about it yeah. on the discord if you haven't already like we've probably have... seen many mm-hmm. other takes and things like that which have gone into a lot of it as well and chiefly we're here to talk about through the window or a new century and all of that but that's the, the point but to specifically engage with what you're saying i want to say that i think greg you know that i was quite a bit warmer on obi-wan kenobi that Mm -hmm. a lot of what tripped you up didn't really sway me from Mm -hmm. being fully engaged with and on board with the emotional thread of it but and that's fine that that's it's mm. my brain you know i don't expect everybody else to have my brain no but the point that you are making that I want to engage with and not get distracted, because that's the point. If I sort of get into the specifics, it's distracting from what your original point is, which is that even if there's some really engaging stuff going on, there's these little periphery branches and things that either don't go anywhere or they're not tended to with the same level of care as some of the more like resplendent parts of this greater narrative tree. And the thing with New Century is that this is something created not out of some obligation, some commercial mm. like sort of contract or something like that. That this is made by someone who cares about the story on every level, in mm. every area, on the macroscopic and microscopic scale, as much as the people who read with and engage with it and take it to heart as fans. You and I, Greg, are turbo nerd fans of <laughs> New Century, but there's uh, someone else out there who is a much bigger dork for New Century and his name is Alex Shaw. Like, <laughs> he is the person who is going to take himself to task more than you or I or anyone else with will do if something doesn't make sense or if a character's arc doesn't really make emotional sense or something like that. So that's what I think nips in the bud so many of these vestiges that like could distract from the greater picture that new century is trying to tell that obi-wan i'm like looking at it from my particular angle and i mostly see the resplendent parts of the tree whereas for you you're seeing a lot of the awful branches that are just cluttering up the things in the middle so it totally makes sense and i think that's why we can appreciate what Alex is able to put together here because he cares. Yeah. And that's the thing that you alluded to a moment ago. This isn't about having an IP 
that you can milk for all the money in the universe. And a lot of times, Alex makes little to no money from putting this out there, but he loves this world that he's created and he wants to get as many eyeballs on it as possible. Therefore, New Century is kind of a gift to its audience, which mm. is why Through the Window is very significant to us as being a gift to Alex. When you mm. get right down to it. Yeah, and it's motivated by a lot of the same reasons that I think Alex is motivated to create New Century in itself, which is that we can't not some... do it. We, we can't not do it, but we also get something out of it. Mm-hmm. Like, by taking these stories and making them something, this library of things that even if some of them are of a higher quality than others, he gets to see a catalogue of things that build into something broader. I know he mentioned at one point that same feeling of he likes having this sort of expansive catalogue of things that he's worked on over the years Mm. on School of Movies, and I'm sure he has that same attitude that he grows prouder and prouder with each instalment of New Century because it shows the sort of breadth of like the range of what he does that Mm. you and I do this because we like to engage with a wide range of subject matter see what we can bring to the table ourselves out of it Mm. get to know the stories better as a result and get to know ourselves better as a result screw you cops I won't stop talking about New Century all cops are bastards (laughs) uh okay i feel like i'm hmm, amazed that we haven't made this joke yet out of steam for now (laughs) so that will wrap it up for today obviously i still need to work on the outline for what comes next Mm -hmm. i've been a little perhaps intimidated by these next three chapters yeah Yeah, exactly talking about these three Mm. chapters in particular But also, honestly, a lot of the other developments coming down the road when they finally reach the southern door. So we're coming to the the deepest part of it. We're in the deepest part of the jungle now. And I don't know how long it's going to take for us to cover it, but I, I am looking forward to the rest of the journey with you, sir. Me too. And we will have time to consider our sort of approach to this. Uh, We may even have time to consider our approach to the next batch of chapters after that, depending Mm -hmm. on, you know, our note making process between us, between chapters, because I'm taking a window to go to Portugal in a week's time to show support to my lovely lady wife's uh, ventures into the academic world of zoology and she will be making a presentation there. I will be working on my own stop motion work. I am very academic about things besides New Century. And uh, in the meantime, we shall communicate. We keep a line of communication between Greg and myself and we shall get ourselves fully set up for the next journey into Steamheart, into Worlds Unknown, except to us because we've read ahead, and having a purple tiger along the way. And we're not just talking about Maureen. (laughs) That's it for now. We'll see you on our next trip through the Windor. Take care. By now, Toby and Sarah have returned from Portugal, and we've already recorded our first conversation on chapters 27 through 29. 
which will come out soon. In the meantime, there's some more outtakes if you like hearing us talk about other things, or flub, or be silly. But I'm going to do something different for this week's outro. In light of all the fucked up shit that David Zaslav is doing, here is Kevin Klein performing in 1983's Pirates of Penzance, singing about how much he loves being a pirate king. <laughs> To live and die under the brave black flag, I fly. Then play a sanctimonious part with a pirate head and a pirate heart. <laughs> Away to the cheating world go you, where pirates all are well to do. But I'll be true to the song I sing. And live and die A pirate king Oh, I am a pirate king And it is, it is a glorious thing to be a pirate king a pirate king, and it is, it is a glorious thing to be a pirate king. It is for the pirate king, for the pirate. I sally forth to seek my prey. I help myself in a royal way. I sink a few more ships, it's true, than a well-bred man or caught to do. But many a king on a first-class throne, if he wants to call his crown his own, must manage somehow to get through more dirty work than ever I do. Pirate King, and it is, it is a glorious thing to be a pirate king. It is, a rough of a pirate king, a rough of a pirate king.
now I just want to burst into a Coldplay song. Um, <laughs> it was all you know. I think I like the version that's sung at the end of Crazy Rich Asians more now. I don't think I remember that. Uh, that yes, Coldplay well, it's, was played at the end of Crazy Rich Asians. Well, okay. it's a it's a a female oh, Chinese oh, a Chinese cover. Okay, yes. cover of it. Mm. But yes, it's. Uh, like when I heard it, it's like, oh, this is yellow. But like, mm. yeah, no, it's a like really lovely uh, version of it. So, yeah, I recommend uh, re-listening to that at the end. If you just put in "Crazy Rich Asians Yellow," then it comes up. So, honestly, I need to like fully rewatch that movie. Kind of. I it's <laughs> I don't think I've seen it since it came out. So, yeah, I've I've, like... I've only watched it once, and this was like at least a year after. Alex and Sharon already did their show on it. Sure. Yeah, I, I think I even remember you mm-hmm. possibly watching it on and sharing your like first reaction mm-hmm. to it on the Discord. Yeah. Yeah, and that, mm. yeah, that was definitely an experience. Mm. And once more, it's like a, an opportunity for me to try something that I wouldn't normally try. Like I mm. heard good things about Crazy Rich Asians, but it didn't sound like my jam. It's what first clued me into Aquafina, and that mm. was a fucking experience. She's great, and it's the perfect overlap between her and Michelle Yeoh. So you know, in a post everything everywhere world, I'm just basically like, I just kind of need to fill up my ho- the whole filmography of Michelle Yeoh at this point because there's a Pierce Brosnan Bond film, which I know will oh, be on the uh, horizon. Yes, Tomorrow Never Dies. Tomorrow yes. Never Dies, which I, I forget if that's the second or the third one, because I kind of get that and World Is Not Enough uh, mixed up. Well, it's technically like, like, it's the second Pierce Brosnan James Bond film. It's not the second James Bond film. Greg, I know it's not the second Bond film. You think that Sarah and I have been watching all of the ones and we're now up to we've just finished the Timothy Dalton ones and we're like, oh yeah, no the second Pierce Brosnan film released sometime in the 90s. That's the second Bond film, right? Like, He's not even the second Bond No, he's not even the second Bond, but I know that it gets confusing because it's like my Doctor Who experience starts with Christopher Eccleston Sure, yeah. Like my, that... my boyfriend. No, uh <laughs> Are you he's kidding? Got lovely ears. Oh well his his ears do make him stand out, but I just I'm actually just a huge fan of his big goofy smile. But also just Eccleston like... does have a very nice smile. You are right about that. We went and we cashed in something that was a wedding gift uh, from a friend of ours, which is essentially like one of those like an experience voucher where it's like, here's something nice to do for a day. And we went to a very nice place on the river here in Oxford where we had afternoon tea and cakes. So if you can imagine the most British thing where we sat down with little perfectly cut rectangular sandwiches with cream cheese and cucumber, and we had scones with clotted cream and jam. We had Earl Grey, don't you know, and many cakes, all served on a little metal tray with plates. It was perfectly presented. You can see it on what I believe they are calling the Facebook, dear Greg. Oh, and don't don't tell me, as you were in the middle of this marvelous repast, Maggie Smith came by just to say hello. 
Yes, we saw Maggie Smith. She's a good friend of ours. We just had a lovely time. And then the theme of Downton Abbey just started spontaneously playing, which is just something that happens whenever British people sit down for an afternoon luncheon. It was delightful. We we were so full and it's it's very hot here. It's going to get hot. Like Sarah just saw a post uh, which is like a thing she follows, which is just very British problems. And it's just a bunch of like sort of inane stuff that is very common that like everyone just sort of says in the UK. And one the thing they said today is the two subjects of conversation in Britain at, at the moment are how hot it is and how hot it's going to be on Monday and Tuesday. That's the only thing because it's going to be like over 40 degrees here then and we are already melting into a puddle. So at that point, we're just going to evaporate into bemonocled clouds of air. But uh, Sarah was away last week, as uh, you might have recalled and uh, she had a lovely time with a very old friend of hers uh, who was our maid of honor and she during her travels found a very cool shop that was selling all sorts of things including pokemon plushes mm, i don't what which one is that i am not familiar with that one greg does not know this one this is magnemite magna Wait, so a Pokemon that is literally like, it's a living magnet, okay. It's a living magnet. It's like a steel ball with like a couple of magnets tied to it. And it has like these little screws that are attached to it. This is a Gen 1 Pokemon. Mm -hmm. So whenever you see people bitching about how, oh, the they just have a bunch of designs in the later generations that are just inanimate objects brought to life and their designs suck, just remember that this is in the original 150 that everyone is always just so gosh dang conservative over. And we have this one, which is uh, Bonsley. Is that meant to be based off of a ficus? So it's basically, do you know Pseudo Wudo? Oh, yes. Yeah. So this is basically the baby version of Pseudo Wudo. Mm, and he's okay. got a little nervous, like, mouth thing where essentially it's meant to be like a sort of a bonsai tree, but it's sort of like a fake tree because it's not grass type, it's rock type. And then we have this one, which Sarah got for herself because. Don't worry, we will get to New Century. This isn't just a plush exhibition hour, but it sort of is. So, you know, <laughs> we can do both things. Because of Sarah's connection to all her lovely, wonderful elephant nose fish, and mm -hmm. uh, she wanted to feel like redouble and re cement and re emphasize her connection to them, she got this one, who one of her other elephant nose fish. Are they with us still? Or? Yeah, they're, they're with Christine. They're with Christine. We have they a. Oh, right. So, like, the rest of the elephant nose fish that Sarah had and was working with with her experiments and her PhD are being kept by someone, a colleague of hers, who had the wherewithal to, like, essentially keep them all together in a large tank. And this is uh, the namesake of one of them, Fampy. Oh, it's very cute. It's a little elephant. Mm -hmm. 
Actually, I'm going to have them sit here during the recording session with me. So, you know, <laughs> okay. uh, I, I'm, I'm keeping them. Um, okay. <laughs> Speaking as someone who is absolutely going to be throwing his work rest balance out of whack uh, over the next uh, thesis duration, uh, <laughs> that no one deserves that and least of all you so mm -hmm. even if like circumstances and schedules aren't allowing for that i am sending you a massive old hug and being like we shall get you to rest and have greg time god damn mm -hmm. it so we shall we're making, talk. We're making progress we shall have so good time and mm -hmm. then you can i'll let you enjoy the rest of your day afterwards as well mm -hmm let you enjoy the rest of the day like like i'm some sort of judge who's just like hmm you have performed admirably go enjoy your day <laughs> you're ridiculous toby i love you i'm glad that i can that yes, something you, that we do together helps you you rejuvenate me sir also, oh, well, it's, it's... that that goes into my whole like white mage uh, tendencies. So, <laughs> uh, whenever I'm in a sort of like group setup, I tend to always like to do the sort of support roles rather mm -hmm. than like some sort of at the front of the pack. Like back when Overwatch was a thing, I played mm -hmm. rather than just being generally like wary of anything Activision Blizzardy. Mercy was kind of like my go-to character. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I All can right. definitely see that. Was mm -hmm. the red mage the one that was sort of like in between? Like he had jack some... of all trades. Yeah, uh, exactly. had a nice hat. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I I think I'd honestly consider myself more of the red mage myself. So yeah. Mm. Okay, this may be a little bit of an editing nightmare when we're done, but it's fine. <laughs> Sorry, because that's in the far future at this point. That's that's um, tomorrow, Greg's problem. Yeah. <laughs> What's he ever done for me? <laughs> Have you made any progress towards getting your own copy of everything, everywhere, all at once? Not yet. Okay. I, like, we'll probably be sorting that out on my return from the trip and uh, all of that. So I will definitely be, hello, we are just wrapping up, uh, but uh, there's Sarah showing me a picture of a very surprised Snorlax with its <laughs> eyes open. And to be honest, it looks as if someone just took a couple of the googly eyes from everything everywhere all at once and just slapped them onto a Snorlax. Uh, slapped but... them over his closed eyelids. I mean, yeah, uh, well, that's it. I mean, I'll show you. Uh, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's, ah! it's nightmarish, isn't it? Uh, someone, someone hit him with an apple. That, I, I think that might actually be what's going on in one of these things. Um, but uh, no, I will absolutely be getting a Blu-ray of everything everywhere, soaking through all the like, special features and just like going frame by frame on that because I definitely want to be going through that again mm -hmm. that will be a good conversation yeah i'm really looking forward to that obviously you may have seen that i have my copy already but i've been waiting for a proper moment to enjoy it well uh it's 
four o'clock here, so I should probably let my mom know that I'm done and then head over in that direction. It has not been... Well, okay. It's been similarly hot out here as it has been for you. It's just that, fortunately, uh, I experience the heat a little bit differently out here. It's more diffused. And the house Mm. that I'm in, particularly since my primary nesting place is in a little family room in the basement, which is cooler. So Mm. I've been relatively, like I'm protected from the heat during the day at work and Mm. I'm protected from the heat during the day at home. Uh, Meanwhile, you and the Shaws, unfortunately, have been having to deal with a humdinger of a summer, which I am very sympathetic Mm. towards. But yeah. Yep. It's, uh, we, uh, like, we are just sticky melty ice cream <laughs> of people now it's like the end of Raiders of the Lost Ark but with fewer Nazis um, <laughs> I mean you're not Nazis it doesn't mean that mm-hmm. certain uh, Brexiteers that you're surrounded by yes it is a persistent and uh, infuriating problem but uh, it is one that uh, you know liberal application of punches to the face uh doesn't necessarily make the problem go away, but it uh, certainly uh, makes me feel better about it. And I do have some potentially additional thoughts about this. I'm just not sure if this is the right place to bring them up, primarily Mm. because it isn't until Uncivil Outlaw that we actually start discussing in-world what some of the mechanics are as to how the wind doors actually work. Mm. There's only so much that we can apply Discord black spoiler text to audio format. Yeah, exactly. The more nuance and context you provide, the better we can engage, the better we can engage with and empathize the better we can engage and empathize. Oh, Jesus Christ. The better we can engage and empathize. <laughs> Jesus fuck. Okay. Wow. I haven't had a screw up this bad in a while. The better we can engage and empathize with the characters. <laughs> Fucking hell, I did it. First of all, Annie absent-mindedly experiment that it's not that I've got that right that wrong curse you past TV first Abby absent-mindedly experiments they just and, said Ab- oh, oh I'm sorry I you yeah no I my head in the past and now <laughs> I was like wait it's not Annie that is expect like playing with the window it's Abigail so <laughs> right I didn't get you what you were doing at first I just suddenly know that you changed the word that I had on my screen, and then I was like, I suddenly did a hip check, and I'm like, no, wait, that was the correct. <laughs> okay. All right. Third try. All right. First, Annie. Fuck. <laughs> uh, 